What is up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here with Schwann Humes for episode 171 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. And I just want to sit here and say thank you for taking the time to check out this show. You can always find us in a couple of different places. I'm going to run through that list now. Go over to our flagship at MMARatings.net where we keep all of our content there. Schwan, Adam, and myself do a lot of the writing that's on that site, so you can check us out there anytime, any day. You can catch this podcast and the Let's Talk Wrestling podcast over at uh, Anchor, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and always on Spotify as well. And then you can also hit us up on YouTube, MMA Ratings on that channel as well. But I'm not here alone. I'm here with the dude who is... Going on a one-man rampage against children. You got Sean Humes here, sir. How are you doing, my friend? Oh, uh, not bad, man. Busy as always. It's always busy when you got kids. It's always busy when you got kids. I tell everybody, make sure you're sure before you have them because there's really no free time. There's no free time. Okay, let me ask you a question, though, man. Have you um, have you put our our hashtag and our resolution into practice from last week? I have not. I am afraid that my kid's mom will see it and want to fight me. <laughs> I mean, but look, she might be on our side. She could be, but I'm sure that my, my mother and my dad will not be, and eventually it will get around to them. So even though, they, even though, even though in, when they were my age, they would have signed on to the hashtag, they will not accept the hashtag coming from me regarding their grandchildren. So as far as I'm concerned, um, we're gonna start a segment at some point called "Fuck Them Kids," and it'll 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 be maybe a, a weekly segment because I always have something bad to say about somebody else's kids, but that's neither here nor there. Um, let's go ahead and hop into this show today because we have a little bit to talk about after perhaps the UFC's biggest event of the year was held this past Saturday over on Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi. UFC 251 featured three title fights and a couple of other important bouts as well. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the two UFC cards we have this week. We have two. Two uh, meh cards on paper, but two cards anyway. And then we have some listener questions we're going to run through as well. So, Schwann, let's go ahead and kind of jump into that. And let's start off with the most important fight from UFC 251. Kamara Usman defeats Jorge Masvidal across 25 minutes of action. Two cards of 50-46, or excuse me, 50-45, and one card of 49-46. Mostly a lot of taking, um, basically manhandling Usman, that's what it, or, or Masvidal. Masvidal did get some good shots in, but... Kamaru implemented his game that he implements to a T to get the decision. Are you surprised with the outcome and the way it occurred? Uh, I can't say I'm really surprised by it. A lot of people were talking about how they expected Usman to kind of dominate on the feet and use the wrestling in spots. I didn't really see it that way. Um, Jorge Masvidal basically... For he, you didn't fight Usman, he was doing the right things. When he was firing his shots, he was firing full power, trying to punish the legs, punish the body, and he wasn't scared to throw his shots. And when he was being taken down, he was trying to scramble to get back up. 
or was trying to defend the takedown and get away. He had a good game plan. And early on when he had the energy, he was showing that he could be effective, not o- over the length of a round, at least in spots. The problem was um, he just didn't have the cardio. It's also a matter of physicality because Usman is one of the most physically gifted fighters in the UFC period. So it's not just a matter of Jorge not being prepared. It's a matter of Usman was doing things to exhaust him. But if you look at the bare bones of what he was trying to do, aggressively aggressively counter him, um, get back up, make him work when he gets a takedown, or stuff the takedown and get away, try to stay off the fence, that's what he needed to do to win the fight. But to do that against someone like Usman, who's going to continuously put pressure on you and chain wrestle, then you're going to have to have a very high level of cardio because you got to, like I said last week, for you to beat him, you got to make him work to get to the spots he wants to. you got to make him work once he gets in on you. And you got to make him work once he gets you down to get back up. The first round, maybe first round and a quarter, Jorge was able to do that. The fight was fairly competitive. Once he was unable to do that and started accepting positions because he didn't have the energy to get out, get out of them, the fight was over. There was nothing else left to the fight. So let's talk about that because this I want to say, looking at the fight, thinking back to it, it was clear Masvidal was tired, and I'm saying tired with a question mark. After those first couple of scrambles, I mean, Usman was on his, not on his back per se, but like he had him in the turtle position, as, as we call it, with all of his weight um, down across the back of his neck and, and his back. He was, he was in a pretty solid position right from the very start there. Uh, people are looking at this as Masvidal had the built-in excuse that he's only been that he only took this fight on six days notice and while I'm looking at that like okay yes he took this fight on six days notice he's been training for Kamar Usman for an exceptional amount of time so if both of these fighters had a 12-week camp do you think this fight looks any different? Historic in, in a sense it looks different because I think having better cardio and training specifically I mean Having a better card, focusing on that and really be able to key in, especially after he's fought Usman once. Because once you fight somebody, you kind of get a feeling for how they feel. You find out how strong they are, how fast they really are, not just how they look. He, so he actually knows how Usman feels. I feel there are things that he could do that would improve it. But once again, the same issue comes back, has historically plagued him. Because in his recent run, he's been knocking guys out in the first round, round and a half. But in this fight, the fight went round. And when the fight went round, what happened? You started seeing some of the, the bad habits. He, him getting backed up into the cage, him kind of accepting positions, him doing more slipping, sliding, and blocking instead of actively countering or actively getting increasing his position, things that he's done historically throughout his career. So maybe if they have an extra six weeks, he can, he can stop certain positions and he has more energy to get out of certain positions. But the fact of the matter is the bad habit of backing to the fence and the habit of going defensive and just showboating or smiling and throwing your hands up instead of actively countering or doing something is, is, are things that he's done throughout his career. And I don't know that he can eliminate those things at this stage. So even if he's able to defend certain spots and get out of certain spots, we still know he's going to get pushed back to the cage. We still know he's going to be defensively sound, but he's going to let a guy outwork him. Even if the guy's not landing clean, that guy's still throwing, you're still shrugging your shoulders, smiling, throwing your hands up, which looks cool and shows that you're defensively sound, but it's not scoring points. And it's not showing that you have control of the fight. So I think it'd be more competitive. I still think Jorge has a good chance to win it. But those two things, and it's something I mentioned the night before the fight, we haven't seen him have to go three, five rounds before. He's been knocking guys out so cleanly and so decisively. So what happens when he can't 
do that? Will that urgency go away? Will that ability to finish go away? Will that will that attention to detail go away? And it seemed like the further the fight went, the more those things seemed to wane a little bit. So you said a lot of good things there. And um, I think a lot of them really kind of stood out. I think this fight really played out uh, the way a lot of us in the know figured it would play out. I was pretty interested in seeing across social media the way some people were reacting, more casual fans, how they were reacting with anger towards uh, Usman for the way he fought this fight and calling it boring, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But my first question is whether or not you think this is a career-defining win for Usman. In my opinion, it's not. I don't think it. the rub that... Uh, what's his name? The rub that Usman would get from a win over Masvidal isn't as big if he didn't knock him out and like basically put him down. But do you think this is a career-defining win? Because if you look at the top 10, he's beaten, I think, seven out of the top 10 guys in the um, division right now. So is this his most important win at this point At this point in I would, his uh, title run? I would think the most important win as far as how he's looked at and making an impression on fans would have been the Covington fight. If the fight with Masvidal would have been more like the Covington, Covington fight and he would have won by even a decision – the the amount the amount of engagements the level of contact the amount of volume thrown and the pace would have been enough to draw fans in because that's what fans really wanted to see and it's not his, and and even though I wasn't particularly like excited by what he was doing I can appreciate the craft of what he's doing it's not his job to make it exciting it's not his job to entertain us it's really not everybody says that it's your job to win if you can't entertain while winning spectacular but the win that really showed people something and was exciting would have been the Covington fight. And he could have done that with Jorge. I think he could have had some moments. He might have even won the fight. It just would have put Jorge in a position that would have best allowed him to win. So if you want to talk about as far as did he get in front of the most amount of eyes, yeah, fighting Jorge Masvidal helped generate interest. So all these people got to see Usman. But as far as the performance, it really made him stand out or really separated him. I would have said the uh, the Colby Covington fight because that, that was just a very highly contested very action-packed, very um, emotional fight. Um, I guess if you go, it needs to be that or the Woodley fight because the Woodley fight was for the title. But I, I'd say Covington fight was was more important and made a better impression of him across the fans and even to the uh, to the UFC brass. Good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. Last thing I'm going to ask about Masvidal is what do you do with him next? Do you... I think that fight with um, Connor is still there. I think it's still easy to make right out the gate. But what would you do next with Game Brett? Um, I don't know. I mean, now he's got some bargaining power because he's been shown. I mean, I know they have a, a very good card, at least the main card. I know Usman's got some popularity. But if you're expecting me to think that Usman and that card by itself did $1.3 million, I don't believe you. I think having Masvidal come in last second like this, especially given all the time he's been talking about getting his respect, fighting for – uh, fighters rights and all that, I think it really helped kick up the uh, viewership. So um, right now you've got a position where anybody he fights is probably going to generate some kind of interest. You, you can put him in against a, a McGregor that probably does a million and a half if not two million. I mean, you put him up against Usman again, the whole storyline of him having six or eight whole weeks, it's something you can build off. It probably generates interest. I mean, at this point, he can make money fighting 
pretty much anybody who's got some familiar, who's got even basic name branding. So the question is, what does he want to do? If he wants to go for a title fight, I don't. The fight wasn't competitive enough to get a rematch. The fight might sell so much that they might give it a rematch. But as far as competition wise, it wasn't good enough to get a rematch. And and um, the McGregor fights out there, pretty much you can fight him against anybody, and they'll draw some kind of interest. But if you want, you want to maximize the interest without him losing. So if you can, maybe even a Nate Diaz rematch, that might do some even better numbers. To be quite honest, um, but I, I try to maximize it while I can because he is on the later stages of his career. Not like he's going to be around here for another 10 years. Hopefully he won't. I mean, no offense to him, but as a fighter, I wouldn't want him to be around for another 10 years. So I, I hope the UFC is going to try to do something that would maximize his earning potential. I agree with you that he's at a point now where he has the most potential to make the most amount of money possible. I am looking towards that Conor McGregor fight, but they would have to... Like, it would, that's, like I said last week, I think that's exactly why they didn't put the BMF title up for grabs, even though it's a fake belt, because they want that to be the bargaining chip for Conor McGregor, and that's exactly what it's going to be. That's exactly where it fits in. I would like to see that fight next for him. I would not be surprised, Sean. I wonder if he still could make 155 pounds and try to, try to put himself in position to fight for that title, because you know we know Khabib Nurmagomedov isn't, probably isn't going to be fighting for a little while with the passing of his father, and that's definitely understandable. So it would be interesting to see if he would pull off something like that. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about that. Do you think that that's something he could possibly do? If I was him, I'd have to be really sure I could make that weight, because right now he's still hot. Usman did not beat him in a manner that really takes a lot of shine off him. Usman didn't knock him out. He controlled him, but he didn't submit him. He didn't really have him looking like he was going to quit. So you can still kind of market him and spin him as a guy who's dangerous and can beat anybody. If he wants to go to 55 and he wants to get paid or get a title shot, that's fine. But he wants to make sure that he's not compromised because a poor, poor showing will take away any sort of heat he's gotten in the past. And it took him the past, you know, entirety of his career to build up, especially the last two to three years. And he can't afford that. He needs to be either getting titles or getting seriously paid for the last couple fights he has as a uh, main card prime fighter. I agree with you there, sir, on that. So let's move on to the co-main event. Let's talk about Max uh, Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky, where Max Holloway lost the fight. And a lot of people are pretty much standing on the grounds that Max Holloway was robbed. It was a split decision victory for Volkanovsky, much different than the first fight. So the first question I'm going to ask you, Sean, as we always do with close fights like this, how did you score it and who did you score it for and why? Uh, I, th- I, I thought it could actually be a draw. The first two rounds were clearly Holloway rounds. It wasn't really close. The last, three round, the last two rounds were close, but in my opinion, they were clearly Volkanovsky rounds. It's really a toss-up to the third, so I really felt... Volkanovski did some really good work in third, but I think maybe, maybe Max eked it out. So I, I thought it really could have been a draw, to be quite honest. In the best-case scenario, I would have said it was a draw. Okay, you scored it as a draw there. So how did you score? Well, you said you scored it as a draw, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, what so- was so different about this fight than the first one? Because it looked a lot different in a lot of different ways. Well, the main thing is, I, I still stand by everything I said the first fight. The thing is, I said Max could find – there's things Max has done historically that he could do in this fight that would allow him to make adjustments. The fact of the matter is Max hasn't really shown 
adjustments or depth in the majority of his fights. His adjustment in the 90% of the fights he's been in recently has been, I'm taking a lot of shots. I'm going to up my volume. I'm going to up my work rate. Yeah, there's technical skill behind it, but the main thing is he can take whatever you have to dish out, and he ramps up whatever he's dishing out to you. Most guys can't handle it. And that's been – that was against Aldo twice. He tried it against Poirier. He tried it against Volkanovski. It's basically what he's been doing for the past couple of years. In this fight, instead of him just wildly taking the lead – because people forgot, at some point, Max Holloway would throw volume, but he'd be, like, more of a an aggressive counterpuncher and let guys come to him. Like when he fought Clay Collar. Clay Collar was throwing balls, swinging – Winging for him, and Max was turning them, fighting a little bit off the back foot, countering them, kicking them, punching them, jabs, uppercut, shots to the body, kicks to the body, kicks to the legs. He did something similar to Jeremy Stevens, stuff like that. He, he wasn't just going forward and upping his volume and eating shots. So he went back to that. When Volkanovski tried to close the distance, he's meeting him with jabs. He's fainting, getting Volkanovski to show his hand and countering him. Volkanovski tries to transition ranges. He runs right into a knee. Volkanovski tries to change levels, fake high, go low to get to his body. He's running into uppercuts. The main thing is, for once, Max didn't just jump on a guy, set a pace, and then build on it. Now Max is drawing out your attack and countering whatever you have. And it took Volkanovski a minute to get adjusted to it because Volkanovski was thinking, oh, I'm just going to kick him. I'll just kick him, kick him, kick him. Max is going to box me up. Max started countering him. Max started taking away the kicks. Max started kicking with him. Maybe not as much or skillfully, but he, will, he, did, he didn't concede that range this time. So now instead of Volkanovski having free range, the kick and then use the kicks as entries for his punches or takedown attempts. Now he was getting countered with punches or he was getting met with kicks of his own. So that threw Volkanovski off and Volkanovski was forced to adjust. The difference being that when Max fought somebody who had figured him out, Max didn't adjust until five rounds later and three, four months later after he trained for it. Volkanovski halfway through the fight realized what Max was doing and then started switching up his targets, using his lead hand more, Instead of using the outside leg kick, using the inside leg kicks, throw Max off, break his stance, and then follow with combinations, use him to get to his body, get the takedown. He made an in-game adjustment, and by the last two rounds in the fight, I felt Volkanovski was actually building on the work he had done and taking over the fight. Max set a pace, and he made an adjustment, but once he gets past the second round, he didn't really do anything else. He was basically sitting on a lead. He didn't have any other tricks to what he was doing. Volkanovski adjusted and started building on it, started throwing combinations, started getting volume, started getting takedowns, started controlling the pace of the fight. So that's why it's so confusing because the first two rounds were so dominantly for Max, but Max couldn't build on any of those, those advantages after two rounds. And Volkanovski slowly started building on and taking over the fight coming into the end of the fifth. Okay. Good thoughts there, sir. I like how you really broke that down. Let me ask another question here, sir. The next question is, in reference to the one and only trilogy piece that off that we don't talk about too often in MMA because it doesn't happen that often. It's not like boxing where guys immediately go right back to the rematch. Would you be mad if they booked the third fight in this uh, pairing? I wouldn't be mad about it. I just don't know if it makes sense right now because. I honestly do not think Max can stay at 45. I don't think he can stay at 45 another year or two. And this would have to be, what, three, probably maybe a minimum of six months before he could get this fight again? I think, personally, making the weight is becoming problematic for him. I think it's taking something out of him. And um, I don't know that it's a big enough money fight or there's enough real... And I don't mean demand from hardcores. Of course, hardcores want to see high-level fights. But enough demand from casual fans to make it worth them doing a rematch. Um, on the physical aspect, 
and I, I want to make this out. Last week, I said that I felt Max, Max had been compromised and he wasn't the same guy. The way this fight went also tells me that same story because in previous incantations of Max Holloway, once he figures you out, not only does he just start throwing, he starts building on it. The volume goes up. The exchanges get extended. He starts backing up and breaking you down. I don't think I think Max and his team realize that he doesn't have the same chin. He doesn't have the same recuperative abilities, and he can't get into extended firefights. That's part of the reason he didn't build on what he was doing, because for him to build means to extend exchanges. To extend exchanges means you're going to be there to be hit. Your most riskiest time to get hit is when you're trying to hit somebody. So if, if all these things are true, and from my opinion they are, can Max really afford another six months of this weight division, making another weight cut against a guy who's already, who already adjusted to him halfway through the fight? Does Max have another set of adjustments he can make? Will his chin hold up if his next set of adjustments don't work? And he's forced to really go back to squirt, to scratch with Volkanovski. I don't know if it makes sense. I mean, he, he he essentially, some people say he won it. I said it was a draw, but he could leave on a high note and just move up to lightweight and get to work on it, processing that. Because if he loses that, he's lost two out of his last three, and he's going to have to move to lightweight anyways after three, which would be three punishing fights in a row. On top of the other three or four punishing fights he's had. Can he be a successful lightweight, though? I think he would be not small as in like stature, but I wonder if his ability to deter people will be just as um, no, it it won't be, it consistent. won't be. But he, he he's not going to be that guy. He's not going to be that guy at featherweight either. He's no longer that guy. The old Max Holloway, the one who took Jose Aldo's best shots clean, was getting stunned and backed up by Volkanovski in the first fight, and later in the fight he was getting stunned and bullied a little bit by Volkanovski. In the second fight, the prime Max Holloway didn't get was taking shots from Jeremy Stevens and walking forward. Jose Aldo leg kicks and walking forward, but he wasn't able to do that to the same degree against Volkanovski. If you saw it, then let me know. I didn't see that in that fight. I saw him being very careful, very meticulous, very disciplined because he was afraid of opening himself. Not afraid. He was very responsible and not opening himself up to obvious counters or just forcing a firefight. Because I don't. I think he knows he can no longer. He, he has to pick and choose his battles now because he can no longer just walk through shots anymore. And that's adjusting him. He's not the same guy at 45. He won't be the same guy at 55. But if he makes these adjustments and continues moving forward with them, he can at least be competitive at 55 and maybe angle himself into a title com- com- conversation. But he's no longer the, the, the uh, he's, he's not the same guy. He can't, he can't throw that volume. He's not durable enough to anymore. And if you throw that much volume, you are going to get hit back. So who do you have next for Volkanovski then since the 45 um, weight class is basically devoid of new challengers? Who do you put next against, who do you that's put out weird, there next against them? That's the weird thing. Ortega hasn't fought in a while. Uh, the Korean Zombie hasn't really fought in a while. I mean, it's almost like they, they might be forced to make another max fight. I figure it's going to be Yair, Yair, Calvin Kator, or um, Zabit. One of those three is it, probably going to have the best chance at fighting Volkanovski. They're probably going to get at least one fight in before they fight um, Max. Max might have to win another fight before he can get Volkanovski again, which is two fights, and that's almost a whole year at that weight class longer. So, yeah, I think one of these three, if Cater wins this fight, I think he's got a, this, he's got an argument. Zabit's got an argument. I guess maybe if Yair wins his next fight, he's got an argument. Pretty much as best I could see it. We'll be talking about um, Calvin Cater and Dan Ige. In a second, let's move on to that third uh, title match against um, Peter Yan and the formerly mentioned 
Jose Aldo, where Peter Jan stopped Aldo violently uh, with those shots in, uh, what round was that, fourth or fifth? I don't remember what round it was. But I that, those, that, man, that stoppage sequence, all those shots that he took at, at the end was totally, totally unnecessary. It was, it was a bad look for, for everyone involved there. But let's talk about Peter first before we focus on Jose and that situation where he got finished like that. Is Peter La- Peter Jan the is is he the guy that can add some stability to this division now? We've seen him put on a good performance. He looked good from the very start. Aldo had some good good um some good parts. Like he definitely was landing some body shots. He looked good in, in many ways there. But Jan was able to get the victory. Is Peter Jan the guy who holds that belt for an extended period of time and and adds some stability to 135? Now that um, Henry Cejudo is gone and all these challenges are popping up, uh, he could hold the belt for a while. But I, I saw a lot of vulnerabilities in that. Um, he is not super athletic. Um, he he throws a lot of volume. A lot a lot of his work is based on volume and physicality. Defensively, I don't think he's great. And um, I know I know that uh, I know that. Nobody really expects Aldo to take someone down, but the ease and the cleanliness of that takedown by Aldo has got to make a guy like Aljamain Sterling just, like, lick his lips, like, oh, man, if I could just get my hands on this guy. I mean, he looked good against Aldo. He showed toughness. He showed a variety of skills. He layered his striking. He worked the body mercilessly. He landed counters. He Once he got going, he built momentum off his strikes, not just landing single strikes or short combinations, but putting them together. He broke down Aldo's defense. He got his timing. And started picking them off, picking them apart. But the fact of the matter is, uh, when he came, he started off slow once again. And um, even in the first round, first and second round, Aldo was giving him trouble with movement, fundamental skills, body punching, and, um, and basic techniques. Aldo wasn't doing anything special. He's moving his feet. He's moving his head. He's standing at an ankle. He's aggressively countering. And he's punching and using kick-punch combinations. And... Jan couldn't get away from any of them. He didn't really have a defensive answer. He was essentially walking into them and trying to bully his way through, or he was getting covering up and getting eaten up by them. Um, and that's not that's not a new trend. He had that problem against Faber in the first round. He was having a problem with Faber. Faber was landing pot shots, landing counters, and kind of controlling him a little bit with his movement before he figured Faber out and ramped it up. And against Jimmy Rivera, he was being outworked and, out, and, and technically speaking to a certain degree outclassed. So he's a guy who has to build momentum and kind of break you down and wear you down. He's not particularly dynamic. He's not really fast, which means that he's vulnerable because there's better athletes in the division. Uh, Al Malley's a better athlete, probably more explosive. Cody Garbrandt's a better athlete, more explosive. Marlon Moraes is a better athlete, more explosive. I mean, Aljamain Sterling's a better athlete, better grappler. So while he showed some skills and a killer instinct and a mean streak that says that if he gets you in a bad spot or he gets you going backwards, he will punish you, he will end you. The fact of the matter is you can give him problems early on, and if you give him enough problems, you might, uh, you might stop him from getting momentum at all. And if you can stop him from getting momentum, he, he's a regular fighter to me. I mean, a very, very intelligent, very tough one. Still got skills, but his skills are only most effective when he's able to apply pressure and, and physically impose himself on somebody. When he's not able to do those things, he's not great. And when he wasn't able to impose his will and pressure on Aldo, uh, he looks pretty bad, actually. 
Who's the next challenger? Uh, there's been a lot of talking this week from UFC president Dana White, where he is refusing to name Aljamain Sterling as the next contender to that title. And he's and we kind of all knew that this was coming, um, that Aljamain was going to get screwed out of that title shot. But who do you think is next in line for that belt? To be honest, I really have no idea. Um, could be Aljamain. I still think he's a possibility. I know it won't be Sean O'Malley. That's not going to happen. Um, won't be Dominic Cruz. I guess that Cejudo came back, but that's not a big enough fight for him to come back. I'm thinking they might go Cody Garbrandt, and I'd really not like to see that just because Garbrandt's only put one win together, and it kind of makes a joke of the whole division. But the fact of the matter is, if and before I say this about Aldo, let me say that Aldo is a prime example of what I mean when, you te- when you're supposed to coach a fighter. You, you develop fundamentals, IQ, awareness, and defense. If you really develop those things, when a guy loses his fastball, he's going to be able to test even the best athletes, even the best fighters in the division. Two fights in a row, Aldo has fought younger guys, in one case a more athletic guy, guys with one guy with a great gas tank and physicality, and in two fights in a row, he's at least won two or three rounds between them against guys who look more or less untouchable based purely off of skills, awareness, IQ, positioning, and defense. That's why you're supposed to develop these things. So when you lose your fastball, you have something to offer. But back to the discussion, um, Garbrandt is very explosive. Garbrandt hits really hard. Peter Yan is a very, very slow starter. I'm not saying Garbrandt couldn't get overrun and knocked out by Yan, but after seeing how Yan struggled with guys with some quickness and seeing how he started slow, if you're telling me in that first round and a half you don't think it's touch and go for him against Cody Garbrandt, you're nuts. Go, Garbrandt could easily get him out there in the first round. Of course, after that, it's, it's you know, everything's up, especially given his chin. But given how dynamically he hits and how athletic he is, if you're telling me you don't think he's dangerous for um, a guy like Jan, who, who relies heavily on boxing for at least a round and a half, you're nuts. So a couple of different things in reference to what you just said there. First off, um, not only – so Cody Garbrandt, is, uh, he's been announced fighting Marlon Morales. Sean O'Malley is fighting Marlon Vera. So the three top guys have been assigned. So if Garbrandt beats Marais, he's he's gonna get he's gonna get Yan. We I know that. Correct. One hundred and ten percent correct. One hundred and ten percent. But are you are we saying that in the time it's gonna take for that fight to pass, Aljamain is not gonna get a shot at all? It probably make him take another fight. To be honest, I mean, if we're being real, they're probably making. I mean, he he should be already established as the name guy. But I'm thinking they're gonna, they're gonna. I think, I think Garbrandt's got the advantage. I think the way he beat out Asuncia, who was a top five guy, and stopped him cold, a guy who hasn't been stopped very often, a guy who's been competitive against the best of the best, and coming off a three fight losing streak, that really made an impression. Um, I, I don't know what they have against Aljamain Sterling, but it just, it just doesn't look like he's gonna be the guy who's gonna get to get that shot. He could. Dana could surprise me. It's happened before, but. He doesn't seem very eager to put him in that position, and that's kind of a shame. True. I hear you. Let's talk about the women's fights that we had on Saturday. Jessica Andrade and Rose Namajunas, I think they put on a hell of a show. These two ladies look great. Rose got out to an early lead, as as we expected her to, but uh, Jessica did not go away quietly. She was laying some big shots, especially in that third and third round there. What did you think about this fight? How impressed were you with everything that we saw? And 
should there be a third one between these two ladies? Uh, it was the same fight as the first one, essentially. I mean, Andrade is Andrade was getting outboxed, turned, pivoted, countered, led, jabs, leg kicks, body kicks. Um, she was trying to get her hands on Rose. She was trying to land heavy to Rose, and she was just getting lit up left and right. I mean, that it's essentially the same fight. The only difference is this fight, this fight went this this fight was a five round fight. The other round fight was a third, three round fight. And in in the cases of Rose. When the fight got tough and she started getting countered and landing big, instead of Rose actively engaging in grappling tie-ups on the feet, which isn't safe against somebody like Andrade because you reach for an arm, she can toss you. You reach for an neck, she can slam you. On the ground, it's a little bit different because you can control, you can escape. Before she can slam, you get away, you can release, you can control her a little bit, break her posture, keep her from really opening up on you. But on the feet, unless you have something locked in, you have to be very careful with her. In this case, when Rose got stunned and Rose got hurt, instead of Rose resorting to trying to grapple or tie her up or get a takedown, Rose essentially just started, just kept punching. That's all, that was the main difference. Instead of looking for rest spots or looking for safety zone, she continued to fire, to punch with Andrade and to punish Andrade. Andrade is always going to be dangerous because she's she's not a great big hitter. Everybody's going to say, oh, she rocked her, she's such a powerful hitter. She's not a powerful hitter. If she was such a powerful hitter, that first shot she landed would have stopped Rose. I don't care how big your chin is. When you're a knockout type shot person, you land that clean, you knock people out. She's an attritive fighter. She lands, she lands, she lands, she lands. She pushes, she pushes, she pushes the pace. You get tired, she breaks you down. It was harder for her to tire Rose earlier because Andrade, and I don't know this, but from watching her, Andrade knows her chin can be cracked now, and Andrade is fighting with more controlled aggression. It's still pretty high aggression, but it's controlled. The Andrade before would have come out there throwing all sorts of bombs. And Rose would have tired herself out because she would have had to throw so much and move so much, so move so much to keep Rose to keep Andrade away from her and keep Andrade off her. This Andrade was a little bit more meticulous. She was moving her head more. She was being a little bit more careful with how she got into her spots. She was being more careful with how she applied her pressure. She didn't she, she didn't set the pace or build on the pace that Rose she she did with Rose in the first fight because in my mind she knows that her chin can be cracked and so now she's trying to she's trying to protect a little bit. She's trying to pick her spots when she's going to be. She's going to go Neanderthal and just walk through you like a juggernaut. She's not going to hold smash you from beginning to end. She's going to kind of walk behind a shield, see if she can get in certain spots without eating too much, and then unload on you. And that that changed, the, that that was essentially what determined the fight. Had she set the same pace, she would have earlier, there's a good chance she gets knocked out because I don't think her chin is the same. I think when Rose hit her this time, Rose really rocked her. Rose really hurt her. But at the same instance, if her chin was the same, she would have run Rose over. Rose would have gassed, would have gassed just as fast because Rose would have worked just as hard. The first two rounds, she wasn't working hard at all. It was like she was going through a sparring session, just picking her shot, pop, 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 turn, pop, 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 slip, turn, slip, duck, body, head, kick. She, she was just picking her shots, controlling her pace. And she was just doing whatever she could to shorten the exchanges and to keep Andrade where she wanted her, to make Andrade work really hard to get into her spot. And Andrade no longer has that careless abandon. Andrade is trying to be careful now. And when you haven't done that historically, it takes a while for you to really get into that. And it drains your gas tank. Efficiency-wise, being defensive is smart. But if you've never made defensive maneuvers, you've never ducked, you've never slipped, you've never rolled, and all of a sudden you're doing it live, your body is not conditioned for it. It takes you a second to, to match your offense with it. It takes you a second to get your cardio match with it. And Jessica wasn't nearly as conditioned or as active as she was in the first fight. That allowed Rose to essentially cruise through the first round and a half, almost two rounds before she got caught, and then make it through the third round. 
she she had enough energy left over where she just stood her ground, bit down on her mouth guard, and swung back. Had she tried to grapple with with Andrade in, in extended stand-up exchange, she would have got slammed again or KO'd. She knew she couldn't do that. She knew she couldn't tie up. So all she did was, I'm going to bite down, and every time she tries to swing on me, I'm swinging with her. She's going to have to get through these hands for her to get to me. And unfortunately, she was never able to get through her hand. In fact, um, Andrade started clinching a couple times. When's the last time you saw Andrade clinch in a firefight? Usually never happens, but her chin isn't what it used to be. Her recovery isn't what it used to be. And now she's got, she's like Max Holloway. She's got to be careful when she does. And unfortunately for her, she is not skilled enough to be careful. But she is so much better an athlete and so much stronger than most of these girls that being as flawed as she is technically, she's still going to run through everybody except the elite, guy, elite, elite people in the division. So good thoughts there. So let me ask uh, another question for you. Um, it's pretty much expected that Rose Namajunas is going to be next in line for Wiley Zhang. What are some of your early predictions for that contest, if it does go down like that? Zhang isn't the physical dynamo that Andrade is. Um, she, she, she gets a little bit predictable with her combination. She le- leans and reaches a little bit on her strike. She, she also relies on her durability and her physicality. And with Rose's length and her movement, Rose is going to be able to do a lot of work against her. The only difference is Zylie, her, her chin is still there, her confidence is still there, and she's going to make Rose work from the way, the, the word go. Um, and that, that, I think, will be the difference. Um, I don't know that Rose will be able to scare her off as well, because even though she's not super slick defensively, she's more she's focused more on being a defensive and accurate counterfighter than Andrade has. She has a much better skill set than Andrade, but she can set a similar pace and fight with a similar physicality. So it's going to be kind of similar. It's going to be like a better version of Andrade versus Rose. But the fact of the matter is she still relies heavily on volume and activity and defensively against somebody of Rose's caliber, she'll still be there to be hit. So uh, I think I might, if Rose takes enough time off, I, I think I'd favor Rose. I just like I said, I always get concerned with someone when she can't scare somebody off with their power. When she can't scare somebody off with their power, she tends to get in a really bad spot. And Andrade is flawed enough technically where she can't just Hulk smash you, slam you, something like that. You, you can ride it out against her. Um, the champion's a little bit different. The champion's a closer. The champion's a little bit more meticulous technically. And I don't think that if she would have had Rose in those spots that, she, that Andrade had her in last a uh, couple nights ago, I think she would have finished, but I'll favor Rose right now. I just think, um, I just think Rose's length, her athleticism, and her skill set just gives her so much freedom against so many girls who, uh, who are worse athletes and re- really not, don't have her caliber of experience as far as coaching they've received or opponents they've worked with. I feel there's such a gap between them. But like I said, Rose is notoriously known to kind of crumble a little bit when girls make fights, firefights, and make them tough on her. And the champion's perfectly capable of doing that. So the last fight on this card I want to talk about is the battle. Hello? Sorry there, Sean. I was on mute. Yep, I'm here. Sorry about that. So the last thing I want to talk about is, and from this card specifically, is the um, fight between Amanda Hibas and Paige Van Zandt, because now it looks like the UFC finally has another woman on their roster that the fans can get behind that they seem excited for. 
because she did what she needed to do. She dispatched Paige Vincent and she did it in a highly um, highlight reel fashion with that first round submission. So let's talk about Hibas because she is an interesting person right now. She's an interesting prospect to talk about because she usually fights at 115 pounds, but she moved up and they moved her up specifically to get to get Paige Vanzant out of there. So now she's done that. She's moved up a weight class and she is almost in a spot where she can almost challenge for whatever she wants. She can uh, be slotted in as a potential contender at 125 where they don't have anyone and they have the they have her as a straw weight, but that fight that fight path is a lot longer than at flyweight. If you were, I guess, in her corner right now, what path, what route would you tell her to take? One twenty five or one fifteen? Uh, for Rivas, correct. Um, I probably stay where I'm, stay where she's at right now. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, she her skill set's so good. Her skill set is so good that I feel that neither division is particularly deep. Neither one of them has a lot of stand-up at standout athletes. Maybe they got three or four apiece. I feel at this point, I mean, obviously she has to get some more experience. She has to be tested a little bit more. But I feel at this level, with her level of athleticism and her level of skill, she can compete at either weight class. Even if she had a slight weight advantage, I feel like she's so far ahead of most of these girls as far as the skill set she has and the way she puts her skills together that she can manage either one. Um I would probably say uh, at straw weight is the best chance for getting a title fight, but I don't know if she can make that weight class anymore. I, I think she, I think her against the current champion, you know, a couple fights down the road would be pretty interesting. But to be fair, given the fighters in the in her current division, as far as their skill set, she's shown the best all round skill set and best ability to put the skills together outside of Valentina. It's the first time I've seen someone who actually I'm saying, you know what, this could be an not just person who might have a chance, but this could be an entertaining fairly evenly matched fight between her and the champion. A lot of these other girls are so at so much at a disadvantage athletically or at disadvantage as far as their all-round skills, I can't even picture how it'd be competitive unless I have to really sit down and think. With Rebets, I, I could I could see how she could give Val some problems, especially if she rounds out into form and a little bit more experience as far as and, and gets tested a little bit so you can see her poise because right now she's pretty much had her way and there's no way she fights Valentina as good as she is. She has her way for the entirety of a five-round fight. That's just not going to happen. So I need to see her face some adversity and see her have to work through things that go from a plan A to plan B. Because right now her plan A is just too much. And as good as her plan A is, it's not going to be good enough to walk through Valentina. And if she doesn't have anything else to it, she's probably going to get embarrassed and definitely get hurt pretty badly. True. understand that. I am very interested in seeing what they do with her next. Now, I don't I, I'd like to... to see her against the winner of um, Hill Waterson, just because that person would have some attention, because that's a fairly high-profile fight because of the character, the personalities of both fighters. Whether Waterson will, wins or Hill wins, it's going to be a high character. It's going to be a high attention-getting fight, and I would like to see her against somebody who's more athletic, who's also still athletically comparable to her, but someone who's got enough experience where they won't just be clearly confused and befuddled or give her the openings that some of the fighters she's faced have. Because Paige fought a very dumb fight, and Mackenzie Dern just isn't that good as far as her all-around skills. At least Hill has had enough experience and faced enough level of competition 
but there's certain spots that Rebus is going to have to work to put her in. Same thing with Waterson. It, even though she'd have physical, advantage over, physical advantages over her, th there'd be spots where they could work from. Good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. We have a lot to really talk about. Eh, not a lot. There's a lot of M MMA action this week, but not necessarily a lot to talk about and focus on. This weekend, we this week we have two cards. One tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, Calvin Cater and Dan Ige in the main event, and then one Saturday where the planned bout is Davison and Figueredo against Joseph Benavidez. But I saw that Figueredo tested positive for COVID-19, so I'm not sure if he flew out and if he is still going to actually compete in this contest. But let's talk about those two main events and if there's anything else on that card that stood out to you. So let's start with Danny Gay and Calvin Cater first. How do you think this fight is going to go down, and what is really on the line for both men tomorrow? Uh, for Ige, it's a chance to prove that he's legitimately world-class because that fight against Barboza, a lot of people were really iffy about that. They don't know that he necessarily won that fight decisively. They felt that a lot of people favored Barboza. It's off the, the power and the damage done. Ige probably outworked him, outhustled him, but I don't know that he did the damage. I don't know that he controlled the pace in a way that made up for how much damage that Barboza did when he put his hands on him. Um, for Cater, he's close to a title shot. That would be another fairly big win in his cap, and I think he'd be next in line, especially since they have a kind of lack of competitors. He'd be next line if not probably the next line. Maybe he might have one other fight, but I, I think he'd have the best options as far as getting a fight with Volkanovski if they didn't go the Holloway rematch again. Um, it's a good fight, but it's fairly simplistic. If Cater can get his forward pressure going, and can get his boxing going, he should break Ige down over over the length of the fight. Ige likes to fight with pressure. Ige's fairly smart. He likes to wrestle, but he's not a really great wrestler. He's not really great at long range. And long, he has long range weapons, but he's not particularly slick in how he uses them. So for him to enact a wrestling game, he's going to have to get through Cater's hands. Since he doesn't really have a long range game, he doesn't have anything to keep Cater out. And even if he, he schemes for it, I don't know that conditioning-wise and defensively, he's going to be able to flip the switch so he keeps himself from being countered or he keeps himself from getting exhausted and having to throw so many kicks when he's not used to doing them. And at the mid-range, boxing range, he doesn't have anything He doesn't have anything for Cater. So it's going to be essentially if he can push Cater back and use long-range weapons to set the range and, and act as a bridge for him to get to Cater's body, wear him down in grappling exchanges, hopefully get him down and then outwork him or wear him down to the point where maybe you can outwork him on the feet. For Cater, it's just a matter of can I land my shots, get in, get out, turn him, work the body, establish my jab, and just build everything off the jab and knock him out. It's really no more complex than that. He's not a great athlete. He, he's, he's not bad, but he's not a great athlete. He might be a little bit better than Cater, but he's not great. Nothing blinding, nothing dynamic. He's not a big hitter. He's not the greatest submission guy. He's not the greatest wrestling guy. He's a pretty much all-round good fighter with a lot of physicality who fights at a high pace. And uh, in theory, on paper, that shouldn't be enough to be Cater. If Cater's who he says he is and who he wants to be, Cater should win this. It should be an exciting fight, but it should be a fairly handy win for Cater. Do you see either one of these individuals as a title challenger at 145 pounds, or are we at a position in this division where we're getting a new wave of challengers that may not be as recognizable as in the past? Uh, Cater's, I think Cater's got a potential. I don't know that he wins the title because as good as he is in one range, 
he shows such a lack of awareness in the kicking range, such an unwillingness to really engage. He doesn't show, show great kicking defense. And his pressure forward style, it's like he looks for contact, but he looks for it excessively. He puts himself unnecessarily in the line of fire by not setting his stuff up, layering his entries so that he can get in and get out clean. He has the skill to get in and get out clean, but it's like he tries to force firefights, which right now he's winning. But I feel like you know, there's only so many fights you can do that again, and that's only still effective, especially if you face a better caliber of fighter and a better caliber of athlete. I don't know that that would be enough to cut it against Max Holloway. I don't know that it's good enough to cut it against uh, Volkanovski, who, 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 who can fight in volume and can put a pace and can apply pressure, but be a little bit more defensively sound and offensively uh, responsible so he's not opening himself up for punishment and getting his own punishment off. All right there, sir. Thank you for that. Let's move on to Saturday's fight. So if, let's let's act as if Figueredo is fighting. What do you think what we saw in the first fight basically happens here again? If he makes weight, let's say he makes weight, will he be able to perform in the same way he did in their, in their first fight? I don't know, because when you don't make weight, you have that extra energy, you have that extra weight. And, you know, people are like, what is that? Extra? I mean, I'm not a fighter, but you've competed before. You know the extra energy that comes when you don't have to cut that last couple. If those last couple of pounds aren't coming off, how much energy do you have as a reserve when those last extra pounds are still on? How much more sturdy are your legs? How much more hydrated is your brain for you to eat shots a little bit better because you haven't had to drain yourself to make weight? I mean, maybe if he cuts those last two or three pounds, maybe he's not as aggressive. Maybe he doesn't take the shots as well. Maybe he can't tie up with Benavidez as well because he's not as strong because his body is recovering. It, I don't know how well it affects him. I know that Benavides is a more experienced guy, defensively sound guy, technically offensively sound guy, better wrestler, better counter-wrestler, better grappler. But the question is, this other guy has such advantages as far as his physicality, his size, his durability, and his ability to uh, punish you. Maybe not with one-shot knockout, but just break you down with pressure and, and, and his physical strength. Those advantages are going to maintain the same. But if he makes weight this time, they may not be fight determining factors. Um, I've been one of the people who said that Benavides has been losing a step, but even losing a step against a guy who's kind of shallow in his overall skill set and his ability to put his overall skills together, he should be good enough to beat this guy. Uh, this guy makes weight. I, I, I'm going to say that Benavides still has enough to beat him. I mean, this is life or death for him. This is his pretty much his last shot ever to be a champion at, a, at the UFC level, maybe at any level in the May. Um, and he's already lost to this guy once, and um, he's getting a second chance for, and I don't know if he necessarily deserves one, but he's getting one. So I, I would hope that he's on his P's and Q's, and he fights a very measured, very controlled fight and breaks this guy down and, and, and puts him away. That, that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. But given the fact that he's not nearly as durable as he used to be, and his athleticism has waned a little bit, and he's a guy who relies on his timing a lot, it's going to be a dangerous fight for him because he can't take the shots he used to, and he takes some time to find his timing and his spot in a way that it didn't used to when he was on his prime. So let's talk about Benavides, because you already hinted at it. This is his sixth title shot at a UFC or WEC belt. Six. I don't think anyone else has ever received that many, let alone receive them and not necessarily won one. You've already said it, and I, and I agree with you. I'm actually writing a piece about that, that this may be kind of his last stand. Do you think he pulls out a win here? And what would it mean to him to actually become a uh, UFC champion? 
I think he did. I think he does, and it'd be um, it'd be everything to him. I mean, he's never been a champion. He wasn't a champ. He wasn't a champion in WEC either. At least for Faber, you can say I was the WEC champion when we they didn't have lighter weight classes. So the belt has some continuity, and he can say he had a claim on it. He's never had it. He, uh, Benavides has never had it. And the last two times he lost the belt, he got stopped for it against Demetrius Johnson, against this guy. So um, it's really important for him to win this. I mean, if he still doesn't win it, he's still one of the best fighters of all time. He's still got a great resume. He still should be respected and acknowledged. But for him to really achieve the peak of what he wants to be, he's got to win some kind of title. And he has not yet. So this is pretty much everything for him. It's the thing that will separate him from just one of the all-time greats is one of the all-time greats, all-time greats. You know, there's the Hall of Famers and there's those Hall of Famers in that separate room that you can't get into. You know what I mean? That I do. And he is, I mean, man, six fights. He lost to Cruz twice. He lost to Figueredo uh, once. And he lost to Johnson twice. I mean, this is this is the sixth time. This is the sixth opportunity to get a shot at that belt. Let's hope it goes better. Than it has I, in the past. I do feel bad that he's, I mean, because Johnson was so dominant, he had to wait so long because if it would have been anybody else with that championship when he was in his prime, he probably would have been champion and defending one. But, you know, Johnson Johnson stayed there and, and it just pr- pretty much eliminated because he got a rematch so quick. Eliminated any argument he would have to get in the rematch. Like that division, he was expected to be like the lord and savior of that division. They were expecting him to win that belt and be on that throne for an extended period of time. He just never, ever got there. Yeah, first Let's... couldn't get past Dominic Cruz, then couldn't get past Demetrius Johnson. Is there anything else from either one of these two cards that stand out to you? Uh, I don't really think so. Not off the top of my head. Not off the top of your head? All right, so um, you're making a little bit of noise there in the background, so get that straight. Let's talk about the three listener questions we have this week. Um, the first one is about Kamar Usman. What is it that he needs to do to not be called boring? Now, I'm looking at this question, and I saw a lot the way a lot of people were reacting on Saturday. Oh, this is boring. He doesn't really fight. You know, the typical bullshit that comes along with people who, who can't string a sentence together. And in watching him fight, I'm, I don't consider him boring. I consider him strategic, but it still is enough to get the job done. What does he need to do to change that up because I think back to GSP they have very similar styles in some ways some ways GSP was better I think GSP was a better skilled fighter across the whole gamut of of MMA skills but he was not the most exciting fighter of of all time he just wasn't but I think what helped GSP kind of get over that hump towards the end of his career were the opponents he was facing Carlos Condit, he brought it against GSP when they fought. Johnny Hendricks brought it. And even Thiago Alves, for a while, he brought it there too as well. What needs to happen for Usman to be no longer considered boring? you think it's more of his, his opponents that fight him, or is it something that Usman himself has to do? Um, I think a lot – at one point, GSP was actually a very exciting fighter. He used to go for stoppages and do his backflips and his spinning kicks and everything else. Once he got around the title, he started becoming more of a meat and potatoes. I'm going to play safe. I'm going to be efficient. And after he got beat by uh, Matt Sarah, he really started getting boring. I've actually heard a lot of people call GSP boring. The difference is a lot of people like GSP. A lot of people don't seem to like Usman. 
Um, the best thing he can do as far as either one or two things, fight somebody who can force him to have exciting fights. Uh, GSP's first fight against BJ Penn was exciting because he couldn't take him down. He couldn't control him. And BJ was boxing him up, boxing him up on the feet. The Carlos Condit fight was exciting because Carlos would look for scrambles, look for escapes, and was always willing to take chances on the feet. The fight against Johnny Hendricks was exciting because Johnny Hendricks was able to defend takedowns. And once he defended takedowns, he was able to box, at least on even turns, with GSP, which made the fight exciting. So he either needs to find an opponent who can shut down his primary skill set, forcing him into a firefight like he did with Colby Covington. He didn't wrestle as much. It would have been a waste of energy because Colby has a high pace. Colby's a wrestler. It's just safer for me to just go and strike it up, see if I can find openings later on. Or he needs to fight in a manner that is going to highlight his excitement value. I don't think either one is. I think if he finds an opponent, that's great. But more likely, it's best if he just keeps doing what he wants to do because is maybe he's boring, maybe he's not exciting. But if he keeps winning, the stars have to come to him. The money has to come to him at some point or another. And that's the best thing he can hope for. I, I, at his stage, I don't know you care about exciting. Keep winning. The money will add up over time. Now, if he loses, he's not going to get that title back. He's going to be pushed far away from it. But until he does... Every new star, every new hype train, he's going to be the ultimate beneficiary because he's got the title. There's no need to make himself more exciting. Uh, if anything, just make himself a more interesting person. Or maybe he's just not a guy who resonates with fans like that. And that's okay if he doesn't either. Not everybody's going to be a huge superstar. It, it's, it's just not the way it works. But I would suggest he keeps doing what he's doing and just slowly build on it. But the thing about it is, once you get labeled as boring, like being labeled a troublemaker or being labeled lazy or being labeled whatever. Once you've been labeled that, you got to do everything in your power to beat that. And the one time you go back to being boring or lazy or, or trouble, the the narrative is set again, and you got to go at least another 10 years without any hint of that before people even attempt to buy that you're what you're not. True, I can agree with you on that, sir. I think it really has to do with how he um, how he fights and who he fights and how they fight him. I think that is a big piece of that. Let's talk about our next question here, and it is about Paige Van Zant. What is it about Mrs. Um, excuse me, not Paige Van Zant. What is Rose Namajunas? What is it about her that makes her just so lovable that the fans are quick to gather around her and just cheer her on? She is a very like lovable character, for lack of a better term. What is it about her? Probably because she seems vulnerable. She doesn't do the whole "I'm a warrior, nothing scares me, I'm not hurt." I don't do She's very honest about vulnerabilities she's had in her life, his relationships, vulnerabilities she's had with family members, her, her self-confidence. I mean, a lot, of fan, a lot of fighters try to make it seem like they're one of us, but then as soon as you get too close to them, the first thing they say is, you're not one of us. You can do what I need to do. Um, Rose has never been that way. She's been very honest, like, mentally, I'm not there. I'm a little concerned. I'm scared of crowds. I'm nervous. I didn't have confidence in myself. That's what regular people feel. That's what regular people communicate, and she communicates that often and publicly and repeatedly. So if you're a person who's ever doubted yourself or a person who's had mental health issues or had family health issues that have affected how you live your life or how you've done your job, then you can relate to her. And so people want to see that person win because she, you can, you can see yourself in her. You know, you can't see yourself in Joanna who's talking trash and untouchable. That's not realistic. I can't, you can't see yourself in Jessica Andrade. She's like the Hulk if he was squeezed down to 115 pounds and made into a woman. That's not something relatable. But um, Rose Namajunas is kind of like a Steph Curry. She's 
very relatable in how she presents herself and the way she looks. She doesn't look very dangerous. She doesn't look very tough. She outside of the cage on tough, she just looked like some regular cool girl just trying to hang out. So I, I think that's what it is. I think it's just the openness and the genu genuineness of who she is and how she presents herself and her her strengths and her weaknesses. Good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. Let's move on to the last question. Bellator returns July 24th. They do not have a whole card announced. They just have Ricky Banderas fighting against Sergio Pettis in the main event. Are you ready to see some other MMA action from them? Um, and, what, and what do you expect for this uh, card? I don't know what to expect from Bellator just because they're, they haven't been really... we talked about this time and time again. They just don't have very much depth. After you get past three or four fights on their card, you're not seeing important fights and you're not seeing very good ones. So um, it'll be interesting to see what they have to offer. Seeing Sergio Pettis is always interesting. He's, he's got some name familiarity. He was fairly successful in the UFC. But it, it's going to be very interesting to see moving forward what they can do and what kind of cards they can put together. Seeing the best-case scenario, Bellator was putting, putting on really high-level anticipated cards except for like once or twice a year. So I don't know what they're going to do in circumstances such as this. I mean, yeah, and it's relatively close. It's next Friday, I believe. So they don't have a whole lot of time to really put anything together. I think they're working on it. I think they're going to throw Valerie Lareda on that card just because she's been in the uh, social narrative conversation late, a lot lately. So I expect them to do that with her. Uh, but I don't know what else they're going to really put on this card uh, on the, the 24th, especially with it being so close down the line. Yep. And they want strong arm people. Coker's too nice a guy. You still the strong arm you. True. Very true. Uh, what else do you have going on, sir? Why don't you let everybody know what, you, what you're working on in the next few days? Honestly, I, I'm just kind of tweeting through the MMA ratings, kind of when fights come out, break them down or give my opinions on them and just trying to work on my uh, Melinda May, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Black Widow. So whenever I find out when the movie's coming out, I can at least have a framework of what I'm going to do for it. Did it get moved to November, I think? I, I didn't know. I, I've, I've heard different things, so it's... It's just ridiculous. I, I don't even know right now. I feel like it's been moved to November, my friend. And um, that's, if it comes out then, we'll see. I don't. I, I, I doubt we'll be back to where we need to be to have uh, full theaters. But, you know, I'm either here nor there. But with that in mind, sir, thank you for yet another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. For joining me for the show. We will be back next week. And as always, you can catch our content over at YouTube first, where you find us under MMA Ratings. You can check us out at the flagship each and every day where we're um, always putting out new content there. Myself, Adam Martin, and Swan Hume are always putting together the written pieces. You can also catch us on Instagram and Twitter at MMA Ratings Net. And you can catch myself at rgarcia underscore sports. Swan Hume is at Black Jordan Breen. And as always, guys, we'll be back here next week. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us um, and stay safe out there. Have a good night, everyone.